0: Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is… well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the Gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel.
1: Before I read the text for this evening, I want to pray for us. I feel like this talk, I've said this in the past a few times, this talk is more reflective, I think, than it is an actual sermon. There's going to be some teaching elements to it, but I don't really want to connect all the dots for you this evening. I love how we're stepping into some of these um, prayer practices where we're able to sit and to reflect. I know for some of you that might seem strange, but gosh, our weeks are jam-packed. And if we can come and we can sit and we can just breathe and we can listen and we can open our ears to hear where the Spirit might be guiding us, those are good practices. And this evening, I'd like to invite you into um, allowing the Spirit to move you into different directions of uh, conviction and challenge as well. So let's pray together. God, we are thankful for the stories that you are working out in our lives. We're thankful for the story of this community here. We're thankful for the way that you have been present with us from the very beginning. We're thankful that even though uh, it has looked different at different times, that we know that you are with us leading and guiding. And we ask that you would allow us to be malleable, that you would allow us to be shaped and changed, that you would allow us to be convicted and moved, that you would allow us to be able to say, I was wrong. That you allow us to think about you in new ways, ways, new and exciting ways, God, for those of us that are in the room that are um, in the midst of deep hurt or deep distrust or deep uh, difficulty in life, we ask that you would be present. We ask also that you would use us as a part of your body to surround those who need a living and tangible expression of the faith that we have. God, tonight we ask that you would bring a sense of clarity, that you would bring a sense of maybe even just newness from this scripture that is familiar to people that have been in this space for any amount of time, that you would help us to look through uh, the lens of a first century reader as we understand the story, and we ask that your spirit would guide us and that you would be pleased in our efforts. We pray these things all in Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing our sermon series on the book of John. This is John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. The word of God for the people of God. Those last three verses are um, thought-provoking. We're not gonna to touch them tonight. Instead, we're going to look at the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, what most scholars and most readers have referred to as Jesus cleansing the temple, perhaps in, um, in a display of anger and emotion. A lot of people as they approach this passage say, see, what we have here is a human Jesus that understands some of what we go through because he's expressing vivid and uh, vitriolic even emotions where he is filled with with rage and anger. I love the version of this story in Mark's gospel because it's the only one in which Jesus shows up and looks around the town and then he leaves, has a good night's sleep, and the next day he goes in and chucks the tables. not as though he's uh, in Mark's gospel that he's overcome with emotion, he's calculated. He knows exactly what he is going to do. He goes home to get a good night's rest, in a sense, to do what he is about to do, to overturn the tables, to throw the coins of the money changers on the ground, to get the animals out of the sacred space. All four gospels tell a version of this story. And if you've spent uh, the last few weeks with us hearing about the book of John, you've maybe already noticed that what John does oftentimes is very different from what the synoptic authors do, the authors of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John has a different agenda, a different angle, a different theological purpose and goal in which he is telling these stories. John's version is different than the other version's. Specifically, what we see in John is not only the content that is different, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, it happens after his triumphal entry. He's coming to Jerusalem, ultimately to die, and as he enters into the gates of the city and all but Mark, he goes into the temple, sees what's going on, and starts going on this rampage. This event, most scholars would say, is how Jesus is ultimately killed. People had been looking for something to pin on him for a long time, and for somebody to go into the temple to disrupt what was happening, to overturn tables, and to throw money down, and to call people to task, and what they were doing was basically a death wish, because no Jewish religious leader would allow that to happen. Now, what's interesting in John's story, as you've already pieced together, this is only week seven of our sermon series. And let's just pause here for a moment and just celebrate the fact that we're in chapter two and we're finishing it only seven weeks in. That's good stuff, isn't it? Only, you know, 18 or so more chapters to go. No big deal. We'll get there at some point before I retire and before, you know, you guys will get there at some point. But now in the book of of John, what he does is the author takes the story uh, out of this space and moves it to the beginning, fronts it as if to say, in order to understand Jesus, what you have to do is understand this story that will frame his entire ministry. John is saying this story that probably happened at the end of Jesus' life because he would have been killed shortly thereafter because you can't go into the temple and create this sort of havoc was something that happened at the end of his life, but I wanna take it and I wanna put it in the beginning so that you understand what's going on with his entire ministry. This story is also brought together with Jesus in the story we looked at last week where he goes to the wedding at Cana and he makes water uh, turn into wine. These are the signs that Jesus is doing to show everyone who he is. And for the author of John, he says, this is an important story that frames the entire retelling of what Jesus is doing, he moves it from the end of the story to the beginning of the story. Now, for some people, what they have done with this, because their view of the Bible is one that has been inherited in this box that they've probably gotten since they were small, they haven't known what to do with the fact that these books disagree with one another. So then they posited, well, perhaps Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Maybe he did it once at the beginning and once at the end in order to sort of assuage some of their fear and trepidation over the fact that these stories don't necessarily line up chronologically, but one scholar I think uh, kind of hits the nail on the head when he says, unless Jesus cleansed the temple twice, which is unlikely for some of the reasons I've already thrown out to you, it's impossible to harmonize John's chronology for cleansing the temple with that of the synoptics. The reason why I keep saying this to you people is because in conversation with people Undoubtedly, if they are thinking and thoughtful people, they will have questions about what the Bible is and how to deal with it. And if we as the church don't read it honestly attempting to grapple with what it is saying, then we will be ill-equipped to engage any sort of conversation with these people. In fact, I had a conversation earlier in the week where someone was talking about a granddaughter that was at school and that she was attempting to deal with some of these issues and her granddaughter was almost having a crisis of faith. And what it came down to was she didn't know how to read the Bible and grandma said, I want to know what's going on so that I can defend the Bible against what she is receiving at school. And I began, at least in my mind, to think that's sort of the problem because we then have to say crazy things like Jesus probably cleansed the temple twice instead of understanding that John is doing something intentionally with this work in order to communicate a theological purpose. Does that make sense? Are we tracking? What I'm so jazzed about is the fact that if you guys have hung out here for a month, for six months, for two years, for five years, Tessa just posted something the other day about celebrating five beautiful years here in the TRP community, you're going to get a good dose of this. But I think that that's beautiful because it's forcing you to rethink your understanding of what the Bible is. And if we're all going to sit here and say, this is how God communicates to me, It's important that we wrestle with it, that we understand it, that we think about it with a sense of openness and honesty. And as Craig Keener says, it's impossible for us to harmonize John with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you need somebody with a microphone to stand before you and say, that's really cool. That's not a problem. This isn't something that we need to avoid. This is something that we can engage. God has given us a sacred text that is deep and rich and it's begging for us to engage it. This is really good stuff. And I hope that as we unpack this sermon that you can see some of that because there's a reason as to why these authors are telling the story in the way that they are and instead of defending it, how about we allow it to be and see what God is speaking to us through it? Let that one sit with you. And I think by Tuesday or Wednesday, it'll hit you. And you're like, yeah, that is, yeah, that is good. Okay. Now, Gail O'Day says, John moves the temple scene to the beginning of his gospel because it serves a symbolic function for him. Again, John is taking the story, moving it to the beginning to say, in order to understand Jesus, this is what we must have, a, have an awareness of in his ministry. It's all symbolism. Now, if you just woke up and you just read that screen and you just heard that, you might be thinking, what do you mean it's all symbolism? None of it happened? Hmm. Nope, that's not what I said. You missed it. I'm saying that this act, what Jesus is doing, it's symbolic, it's laced. This is what prophets do when they show up and they throw over the tables and they say, get this stuff out of here. You're turning my dad's house into a house of trade. It's a calculated, symbolic act. One scholar would say, it's all carefully choreographed street theater. You guys saw a week or so ago when Banksy somehow snuck that print into the Sotheby's auction house or whatever, and as soon as the gavel fell and it sold, he had this like shredder in there and the painting just came down and it was shredded. That is classic Banksy stuff. You know where I first heard of Banksy? Side note, a sermon. About six years ago, some pastor who's way ahead of the time introduced me to Banksy. Banksy is a street uh, artist around the London area. He shows up, and he does really, uh, I would say, important and politically charged and socially aware um, graffiti art, if you will. He's very well known. I don't want to spend time on him. Google it. You'll be amazed, okay? Okay. Um, But he had this whole thing where when the gavel fell and the painting sold, I believe for $1.4 million, he had a shredder in the frame and it shredded the painting to everyone's shock and awe. It was carefully choreographed street theater. Banksy was punking the system. Now, Jesus is not punking the system, but if we think that Jesus shows up to overturn the tables, to shut down the sacrificial system, we're fooling ourselves because this was a massive undertaking. What Jesus was doing was a symbolic act to tell a theological story to the people that were uh, in the space to see and hear what he was doing and to be changed by it, or at least to be impacted by it. I imagine this will come up later, but since we're right here right now, just imagine for a moment being one of the travelers. This is one of the three pilgrimage feasts that you would go to Jerusalem to be a part of. And if you had traveled from Galilee or you traveled from some distance and you show up and you're waiting in line to purchase your blemish-free animal in the temple courts so that you can go in and sacrifice the animal to observe the feast and the festival, also understand for a moment that just makes practical sense. Instead of carting your own animal for a bunch of miles down the road, just think to yourself, I'll just go and I'll pick one up there while I'm, while I'm waiting, and I'll pay my temple tax while I'm at it. Sometimes we think that these money changers, they're crooks, and that's the point of the story, but it might not necessarily be the case. But imagine yourself in the line, and down there you see some kind of commotion, and you say to yourself, what's, what's going on? Who is this? And then you hear it's Jesus who's going on a rampage. What you don't hear afterwards is the inevitable conclusion that the tables were set back up, that people took their temple tax and put it in the treasury, that people would make their way down the line and receive an animal at some point when they all came back into the space, and that sacrifice would continue. Jesus wasn't trying to shut down the entire system. Jesus was trying to make a move and to make a point and to engage in this sort of prophetic street theater to tell a story. Now in the gospel of Mark, this is the point of Jesus engaging in this way. And I want to set Mark against John here uh, for a moment. In the book of Mark, Jesus is explaining why he goes into this space and is overturning the tables and he's, he's throwing the money uh, of the money changers uh, on the ground and he's, he's dealing with this. He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is a different point that's being made in Mark than it is in John. And what Jesus is doing here in this story is he is attacking one specific um, plot point in this moment. You see, in the temple courts, what you have is you have different spaces where people were allowed to go. The court of the Gentiles out here and over here, it's outside of the temple proper. You also have a space here for women and you have a space where men can go in and you have a space where only priests can go in. But you have the the Gentiles out here who are at a distance. They're allowed to worship. They're allowed to engage. But because of their ethnicity and because of their religious heritage, they are not allowed to go as far as the Jewish men. And they're certainly not allowed to go as far as the priests go. And Jesus says, this is an atrocious state of affairs because my father's house is a house of prayer for all people. And you've taken your nasty sacrifices and you have littered the entire court of the Gentiles so that non-Jewish people cannot worship in a way that's acceptable because you've taken all this stuff and you've, you've ruined it for them. Jesus's point here in the book of Mark is to engage this problem that he sees. The Gentiles are no longer able to worship without animals all over the place. Without people uh, selling things back and forth, their space has been invaded, and Jesus says, no, my Father's house will be a house of prayer for all people. In the book of Mark, um, as N.T. Wright would say, it's about inclusion. That's a buzzword. Just stick with me here for a moment. He says the temple had been intended to symbolize God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the world, the way Jesus' contemporaries had organized things. It had come to symbolize not God's welcome to the nations, but God's exclusion of them. And Jesus says, no, this is an indictment upon the temple for taking people and excluding them from God's good graces. In the gospel of Mark, that'll preach. Because even as we sit here, there's people groups, perhaps, that you have written off and you've invaded their worship space and you've brought all your animals into it and you've made it a a place of disgust for them and you have taken them out of a holy place, a sacred place, because you do not deem their worship to be worth anything. So you'll just take over and jack it up for them. And we can sit here, and this is where I'm not going to connect the dots for you, because each person as you sit in here, if I say certain people have been excluded from worship... You automatically begin, your synapses begin to fire and you start thinking about different folks that you have left and that you have pushed out to the margins or that society has left and pushed out to the margins. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that we see division within our community. Open up your Facebook page. I know for the 25 and under it's like, Facebook, what's that? It's a thing that old people like to use from time to time to share memes that are not helpful at all. In encouraging civil dialogue. That's Facebook. Perhaps you see it in other forms of social media where there are divisions amongst even God's people where you say, "Mm, that person voted this way, they're excluded. That person believes this, they're excluded. That person did that on Friday night, they're excluded. And we've taken our self-righteous worship, we've invaded their space, and we've sullied it, and we've said, you're not welcome here. And in the book of Mark, Jesus says, no, no, no. My Father's house will be a house of prayer for all people. Tear your walls down. This is not the message in the Gospel of John. The symbolism for Mark and the symbolism for John, it's an indictment among the people for the ways that they are acting and and the, the, the theology that they are enacting. It was a symbol of indictment against the temple and against the people for excluding those on the margins and sullying the worship that they could offer. This is similar to what it is in John, but John's focus is different. He doesn't say my dad's house will be a house of prayer for all people. Instead, he says, get these animals out of here. And then the rest of the verse is Stop turning, thank goodness, stop turning my father's house into a market. That's the New International Version. Uh, You could do a more wooden translation of the the Greek text and make it into stop turning my father's house into a house of trade with the play on the word uh, oikos or, or kia. I forget which one it is. Both of them mean house. Stop turning my father's house, the temple, into a house of trade. He's not saying that this is for all people. He's not talking about exclusion. Instead, he is talking about what the religious leaders have turned the house of God into. They've turned it into a house of commerce. Marianne May Thompson says the business of buying and selling had transformed Jesus's father's house into a house of trade, an emporium, or a marketplace. As soon as I read this, I started thinking, actually a few weeks ago, I started thinking about this as well. We've been selling some, some watercolors in the back here for the last few weeks, and I thought, oh no! If some real self-righteous person is going to show up and, and like throw over our giving table, like, get these watercolors out of here. You've turned my house into a house of commerce. This is not what he's talking about. Might it be the case that he's talking about some of the mega churches with a Starbucks in the foyer and a big old bookstore where the pastor is selling all of their books from the trunk of their car and the people are buying them, might it be... I'll let you sit on that, and you can report back to me at some point. You've turned this house into a house of trade, an emporium, or a marketplace. This contrast indicates, she says, what is at stake? Either the temple is a house of human commerce, or it is the house of God, a holy place fit for worship of the holy God. In Mark, it's about exclusion. It's about identifying people groups and saying, you don't fit, you don't belong, you can't worship. And in John, it's about tainting the house of God and turning it into something that it is not categorically, emphatically not. I think that I'll preach too. And it ain't about watercolors. I don't know how to explain this in a way that might, that might land with you, but I'm convinced that not only here, but elsewhere in the American church... We've turned it into something other. We've turned this holy space into something that's not much different than an emporium or a marketplace. That's why it's weird when you come in here and we say, let's have 30 seconds to five minutes of reflection. Let's sit here and let's allow the spirit to move and to guide because that's not usually part of our system individual prayer. It it doesn't happen. Instead, we just wait for the show to unfold in front of us. It has turned into something else, a marketplace that sells a message that may or may not actually be reminiscent of the good news in the New Testament. We've turned this into something else, and I think John has something to say about that. Now, we've gone a couple steps away from the first century Jewish context of this passage. But I think it's worth considering, and for you guys, I think it's worth considering in what ways you have turned your worship into something else. Perhaps your worship is the time in which you hope and pray for certainty that may or may not ever show up. Perhaps your worship is the time where you put God to the test and say, unless you do these things, I'm out of here. Perhaps the way that you think and reflect on what worship should be, it's reminiscent of something in which Jesus should show up and throw your table over because it has no place in what he's attempting to do. In in the book of John, judgment is coming in the same way that judgment is coming for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus's actions, his his choreographed street theater, his prophetic actions, his symbolic works that aren't going to shut down the sacrificial system, but for a moment might make people think. For a moment, it might make the religious leader stop and say, what are we doing? Judgment is coming, and Jesus is saying judgment is coming here to the house of God, because the way that you're trying to work this isn't working anymore. Remember last week, Jesus turns water into wine. And what does he tell the servants to do? He says, hey, look, there's six big stone jars that are used for ritual purification. In the Jewish system, that's where you wash your hands, is where you wash the cups, where you wash the utensils for serving food, what have you. It's something that's important. And Jesus makes them impure by filling them With wine. And the underlying implication is I'm about a new work. I'm doing something that doesn't fit in your box. I'm going about this in a way that doesn't necessarily go with Jewish ritual purification. And in the next text where John has stolen it from the end and put it right here in the beginning, he says, and that's what the temple cleansing was about too. He's overturning the tables. He's saying, get these animals out of here. Stop selling in the midst of God's house. You've turned it into something that it is not. In this passage, of course, the Jewish leaders are incensed by this activity, They respond to him and they say, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? In other words, who are you? What are you doing? You can't come in here and overthrow these tables. You can't throw the the money from these money changers. You can't drive out the animals with a homemade whip, side note. Just think about that. It says that Jesus makes a whip when, where, with what? Does he just walk in and find a corner and sit down and start braiding something together that will eventually be used to drive out all the cattle and the sheep? Fascinating, isn't it? What was Jesus doing? And if he was doing that, what were the disciples thinking? bros lost it. He's making a whip. Who's gonna get it? (laughs) I think it's Peter. I don't know. It probably is. You don't know what he's doing, but he's doing this to have this this moment, this calculated moment. Again, it's not impulsive. He's bringing his own whip to the show. They say, what sign can you do to prove your authority? And Jesus answers in a way that's not expected. He says, destroy this temple." And I'll raise it again in three days. My man, enigmatic, very difficult to understand Jesus coming in with an answer that nobody's expecting. What's the sign you can do to show that you're able to throw over these, tem- these, these tables, destroy this temple, and I'll build it again in three days. Context. Solomon built a temple way back in the day like 1000 BC or so. And this temple was a place of glory and splendor. It was the place where God dwelled. It was the embodiment of God's presence on earth. This is where people went to, to experience the holy. And about 500 years later, that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. This was a moment in the, in the Jewish history that, that was um, difficult for us to explain because we don't have much that rivals it, but for them it was everything. Imagine whatever it is that gives you a sense of connection with the Lord and somebody comes in and steals that and takes that and robs you of that and you're just left with a pile of rubble and the people didn't know what was going on anymore because they didn't know if God was going to show up, they didn't know if God was going to meet with them, they didn't know if they could have communion with God because the temple had been destroyed. And then they began a rebuilding project. This initiates the second temple period because it's the second temple. And when people see its foundations, they begin to cry because it's so small and piddly compared to what Solomon was up to. But again, this was the place where God dwelled. They cared about this place. You don't mess with the temple. And Jesus said, destroy it and I'll build it. There was an underlying prophecy within Jewish thought as well that because the temple had already been destroyed at one point, perhaps it would be destroyed again and rebuilt by a Messiah figure at the end of the age. They were sort of anticipating something like this to happen, but they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. They assumed that he meant that he would destroy the actual temple or that, excuse me, the people would destroy the temple, that he would rebuild that by putting a stone on top of a stone on top of a stone. This is not what he was talking about. Instead, Jesus was talking about himself. Destroy not this temple, but this temple, and I will be raised on the third day. Jesus was communicating a lot throughout his ministry, especially in John. John has these long discourses where he just, there's, if you have a red letter Bible, there's just a lot of red on the page because Jesus is talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. Jesus, however, in this moment, he's attempting to draw some points of connection for the people. He's saying it's not about this temple here where you've brought in animals and you've, uh, you've desecrated it in a sense, where you've turned it into something that my dad's not a fan of. He's saying it's about this temple And you go back a a few passages when when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And we learn that Jesus is an embodiment of the Passover Lamb. In John's chronology, again, it's actually moved so that Jesus is sacrificed on the day when the animals were being sacrificed to celebrate Passover. John wants us to associate Jesus with the Passover Lamb whose blood is shed and put over the doorframe so that we are saved. In a later passage, Jesus goes back to an Old Testament motif where Jacob is on his way uh, to find a wife and he falls asleep and and a ladder comes down from the heavens and the angels are ascending and descending on on this ladder as if to communicate that heaven and earth are linked. And Jesus says to these disciples that he is calling, you will see heaven ripped open, And the angels of God ascending and descending on me. And he's saying in this passage, I am the ladder that unites heaven and earth. And I will show you, God, all you have to do is look upon me. And in this text, Jesus says, destroy this body and I will build it back up. In three days, Jesus is saying, I am the temple. Everything that you think this is, the key to the presence of God, you're going in the wrong way. I will show it to you. I am the embodiment of God himself, and I will reveal him to you. All you must do is look upon me. Get these animals out of here. You've turned my dad's house into a house of trade. I'm going to do something in a very new way way that you may not be able to accept, but I am the temple. I am the presence of God. I am the embodiment of what he is attempting to do. I am the link between heaven and earth. All you have to do is follow me. And in verse 22, I believe it says that people see this. His disciples understand what's going on and they believe him. And they commit themselves to him, and they follow him because Jesus is becoming something that they weren't expecting, but in a way that demonstrates his glory and his goodness. You will see the heavens rip open. All you must do is look upon me. One final quote. Gail O'Day again says Jesus challenges a religious system that's so embedded in its own rules and practices that it's no longer open to a fresh revelation from God. And this temptation, it exists for us today. Jesus shows up to say, the system that you've been working in isn't valid anymore. I'm doing something different but a lot of times we're not able to see it. We're not ready for it because what we have done is we've constructed these tables in our own lives. We've constructed the traditions in which we think that we meet God. We've constructed something that is now disallowing us from seeing a new move of God in our lives. And if we were honest, and if we were open, perhaps in a moment of honest self-reflection, we might say that within our sacred space, there are tables that King Jesus needs to come over and overturn to take the money that we have placed here and throw it on the ground to get the animals that we have brought into the space and say they don't belong here anymore. You've turned this thing into something that it's not. I hope this evening, Is that we collectively can begin to engage in this process where we start to reflect on what these tables. where we start to think about what our traditions are, where we might just step into that world of Mark and say, who are the people that we have excluded? Who are the people that we have uh, sullied their worship, that we have uh, disrespected who they are and disallowed them from coming any closer to God? And we said, no, you guys stay out here and we're just gonna make a mess of your space, but we're the important ones and we can go in here because we have the right theology or because we have the right answers and because we live in the right way. Or we can step over into John's world and say, what are the the things that we have brought into this space to turn this time and not only the 70 minutes or so that we're in this space together, but our very lives, the worship that we offer, what have we done to make it into something that God is not pleased with? Perhaps we've lost our way and perhaps we have uh, forgotten that Jesus is the link And that Jesus, when we follow him, what he wants to do is to come into our space and overturn some of our tables that are keeping us from serving him. So what I want to do this evening, we're going to dip into a little youth group here for a moment. I'm going to leave this right here. And this is not a barrier in between you and communion. But I want this to be a moment where you have to kind of move yourself around the table to experience the presence of the risen Christ. Perhaps tonight there's something, and you know exactly what this is, You know who it represents or what it represents. You know the experience that it might represent. You know the thing that Jesus wants to overturn in your life. And perhaps in this moment, you can begin to deal with it. You can shimmy around it and say, there's space for me up here. I am invited into the sacred. I am allowed to partake of these elements and experience Jesus who offers me forgiveness and grace. And perhaps it might just mean that you have to move around this table And begin to wrestle with that. I hope that in whatever way it looks for you in this evening, that you'll begin to consider in these four different stories where Jesus is overturning things in the temple. This doesn't have anything to do directly with our lives, but hopefully the thing that we can take away is that Jesus is concerned with the worship that we offer, and Jesus is inviting us to something true, and Jesus is inviting us to experience him at a different level.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restore SBY or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.
1: See you next week.